Thomas Chatterton Williams. Is it okay if I call you Tommy Chatty Willie? Is that all I right? Prefer it if you prefer it if you just call me Thomas. <laughs> TC Dubs, what's on your TC mind this Dubs week? Work. What's what's been bothering you? You know, there's been a lot of talk about the NBA this week. We've been talking about who might get the MVP for this year, and there's been some debate. I think that there's three guys that you can't really be. Am I one? Mad. You're not one. You're not one of them. <laughs> Next okay. Year. All right. Fine. Next no, that's okay. It's okay. Yeah. Who are the three? Who are the three? So you got Joel Embiid at the Philadelphia 76ers. You got Giannis. I can't pronounce his last name still, but he's really good on the Milwaukee Bucks. <laughs> the Bucks, yeah. And you've got Nikola Jokic on the Denver Nuggets, who, if he wins this year, will get the MVP for the third straight year, which is really kind of crazy if you think about that in a league that never saw Michael Jordan or LeBron James or Kobe Bryant get it three times in a row. The Did last guy ever, to get that's, it. Oh, really? That's nuts. That's crazy, right? Okay. Last guy to get it three times in a row was Larry Bird. And so there's been some conversation about <laughs> whether there's some bias. Uh, so it's uh, racialized. Some ethnic bias. Yeah. We can't have, can't um, have anything not be racialized, can we? You can't. It's, it's, honestly, it's, it's exhausting. And, you know, Jokic is just, he's, he's a gorgeous player. His game is beautiful. His, his vision is crazy. I mean, he grabs a rebound at one end of the court, turns on a pivot foot, and sails the ball down like a baseball pass for a layup. I mean, he, the guy, is, he's seven feet tall. I mean, the guy plays like, you can't be mad at him getting the MVP. Whether or not, you know, there's a kid, I, I think, that, like, you know, you can make. It seems like the villain here is Larry Bird, right? The villain here is Larry Bird. He shouldn't have won it three times. And if he had, the villain here for me, I don't care who gets the MVP as long as the league would actually start taking seriously what's just egregious traveling all the time, man. You You have incredible athletes, you have gifted, gifted players like John Morant. And they're just taking three, four, five steps. And it's, it's, the league is just, it's plagued by a lack of fundamentals. I've, I've actually gotten really red-pilled. I mean, I came up playing basketball. <laughs> I cared about fundamentals. I got really red-pilled, though, lately through social media. I got turned on to more and more content. Dev in the Lab is the most amazing account to follow. He just, okay. he zeroes in on the violations. And once you start to look, you realize all of the top superstars, Kevin Durant, Steph, you know, Steph Curry, everybody, Giannis, they're taking four mm-hmm. steps. LeBron James, four steps. I don't uh, know. I, 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 once, so once so I took- you feel strong about this. I, I don't have a strong opinion on this, but the podcast is always more fun when I take the opposite side. So, what, <laughs> so what, what I'm hearing... You're going to argue the devil's advocate. We yeah, should not exactly. have rules. Yeah. Just, just, to, just to be difficult, I'm just going to argue the other side just for the fuck of it. What I'm hearing is, it, is you're saying what you like about the game is bouncing of the ball, which is, uh, <laughs> and you're saying, you know, I love it when they bounce it. And you hate it when they, when they are athletes who are free to show off their athletic skill and you want them to focus on fundamentals, specifically the fundamental of bouncing. That's your, well, that's what your is, argument. What is, what is excellence within a game? <laughs> it's, doing, it's doing certain feats in an athletic game, certain feats of athleticism within certain constraints, right? And, you know, okay. basketball would be a very different game if you remove any number of constraints. If you made the rim lower, right. it'd be a different game. If you could take four sure. steps, it's a different game. And, I, you know, it, yeah. it, it might be like a, it might be a cool game for seeing some highlights. John Morant gets some dunks off that you wouldn't get off if you couldn't travel. But also, and, you know, we could spend a whole podcast talking about this and I won't do it to you. But what's really bothering <laughs> me is not just traveling, but the carrying. I mean, you can just go down the line. Luka Doncic on the Mavs. John Morant. I'm going to keep going in on John Morant because this man, okay. he's an extraordinary yeah, athlete. Name. He's abusing every single one of the rules. <laughs> this man is carrying the ball 
in a way that if you, I, I can't watch basketball with my dad anymore. My dad, my 85 year old dad is traumatized <laughs> by what he's seeing on the screen. And I'm pilled on it, man. Okay. It's good to feel passionately about anything, but you know, this might be again, the thing just, I care about just to, the take, most today. to take the other side, you know, so my vision of the NBA would be uh, outlandish skill and rim rattling dunks. And your vision would be well-executed chess passes. Okay, you can say which vision is more compelling. <laughs> There's a place for it all. There's a we're place gonna have for to it table, all. We're going to have to table it there because we got a lot, of t- a lot to talk about today. Stuff that, believe it or not, is maybe even more important, important than traveling in the NBA. Though maybe not much more important. Let's talk about this Chris Rock special. You see that Chris Rock special on Netflix? I did. I did. It, it was making the rounds in my group chat. Okay. And what were the thoughts? So I think that we were waiting to see if it would be really funny. I don't, Chris Rock for me is always really funny. He, he's my mm-hmm. favorite, my personal favorite comedian. I actually played oh, wow. myself in Paris uh, not so long ago when I noticed that he was sitting and talking to a, a rather younger woman very late at night at the hotel cost uh, when I was finishing up probably too many they drinks. They were probably talking about friends. traveling in the NBA. Uh, or, they might have been. Or perhaps she was not teen mental health, health, which is also on our to talk about list. <laughs> I came but continue. Up I mean, we, 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 we can't know what they were talking about in that context, but <laughs> continue. Don't know, but know that I was an unwelcome presence when I came up to him and told him that he was my favorite comic in the 90s. I don't think he liked that I dated him right there. <laughs> he, was not, he was not feeling me. I kind of excused myself very quickly after he said, well, people, thank you. People don't thank like you. that when you come to this and say, hey, when I was a really little kid and you were like mid-career, that was like awesome. <laughs> Old drunk guy saying that he liked you when he was a kid. <laughs> when you're trying to holler at a girl 25 years younger, then you must actually not be welcome. Can I say this? So I, I, I don't know Chris Rock, but I have been at the table at the Comedy Cellar with him. Because the mm. Comedy Cellar, you might know, is this, is this comedy club in yeah, New York. Right. And it is a mix of nobodies like myself. And very big names will drop by. So Chris Rock will drop by. Seinfeld, Louis C.K. Chappelle, they drop by. And while you're waiting for your set, you sit at that table. It, it, there's there, the club's downstairs. There's a restaurant upstairs. Your you peers, sit at the table, yeah, wait for your set. Down there. What's that? Your peers down there. You're sitting at the table yeah. together. It's really cool for people like me because, yes, in a way, uh, we're peers. In a more realistic way, we're definitely not. But we are sitting at the same table, so that's true. <laughs> I'll tell you, people coming up to him and saying, "Oh man, I love your stuff." That is his whole night every night. That is his mm-hmm. whole night. Every I wasn't night. giving him new information. <laughs> yeah, they, they were probably... It was, it was painful. It was, thank you. Thank you. There were Leave probably three dozen people you. behind you waiting to tell him the same thing. But okay, so so this is all personal. This is all personal. No, he's my favorite. So he can't ruin the love I have for Bring the Pain and all these things. Yeah. And, blacker. and, and I mean, by the way, like, I, we share this. I love those albums too. His 90s stuff was, was awesome. Yeah. I, love yeah. I love Top 5. I love his movies. I love, you know, like... What is it? Um, cell block. CB4? CB4. You know, that, I, I <laughs> like when he's, cut. I'm a get you sucker when he's like, you know, like, give me one rib. I, I, I love Chris Rock. Yeah. But I have to, you know, this is wrong think. And I'm, I guess like I'm going to, I'm going to say what I really think about this is that I don't think Will Smith has been treated fairly. Okay. To be honest, I don't, this has less to do with Chris Rock than it has to do with us as an audience and us as a culture. Okay. Will Smith at what point, you know, has somebody been diminished enough? Has somebody been dragged enough, ruined enough? And, you know, what I thought was really amazing about Chris Rock was how elegantly he handled Will Smith's obvious, obvious violation. 
For about a year, Chris Rock took this high road that was really kind of, you know, you don't see it very often. And in the course of hosting the Oscars, when Will Smith slapped him, you know, he was impeccably professional. And I just didn't know if it was necessary for him to finally come out and make the kind of jokes. None of it was new. It was all stuff we knew, but it was extraordinarily mean spirited. And, you know, maybe Chris Rock needed to get that off his chest. And as a comic, he almost had a duty to, you know how that goes. He had to address the, the material at some point. But mm-hmm. why, why did we, if we don't like the kind of incivility that Will Smith demonstrated, why do we then celebrate watching the kind of really nasty personal incivility that Chris Rock gets a chance to unleash on him now? I saw a lot of people yeah. actually on Twitter, you couldn't predict how people would react. A lot of people on Twitter seemed to have that sentiment too. Like, what are we celebrating at this point? You know, like this man, Will Smith, you know, he didn't kill anybody. He's not, he's not the worst person in the world. But for a moment, it felt like, you know, we just, unleashed, you know, this, this period of hate on him, the entire world did in a way that feels extraordinarily disproportionate to me. I wonder what yeah. you think. I, I hear what you're saying. And I definitely do agree. Let the punishment fit the crime. I don't know what the appropriate, you know, punishment for Will Smith. He's been banned from the Oscars for 10 years. Uh, maybe that's 10 right years. Thing. 10 years. Ten years. Lot, well, guess what, man? I'm not going for the rest of my life. So <laughs> most of us are informally banned from the Oscars. <laughs> in fairness most of us not actors but uh, yeah i don't know what, I, I would have to sit down and really really think about what is the appropriate punishment for will smith I, I got better ways to spend my time than that but i do definitely strongly agree with the principle let the punishment fit the crime there has to come a point especially you know depending on how he conducts himself right if he really does seem to realize that was that was not the right thing to do like i fucked did. up there was that it seems like he did. At what point does somebody actually, as what point do we extend grace in this culture is something that I constantly am thinking about. Yeah. At what point, you know, as yeah. this man paid his price for losing his temper in what seemed like a very emotionally fraught moment for him, you know, he came undone in front of all of us. Seems like he's really been through it. Yeah. I, seems I, like I, he wants to get past it. At what point do we allow somebody to get past a misstep? Yeah. No, I, I agree a thousand percent that we are maybe not as good as we, I'm being very polite in my phrasing, we're maybe not as good as we could be. We are, <laughs> what did you, what we are did you shitty, think of- would be another way to phrase it. We are shitty at, at extending grace to people. We should probably extend more grace to them. Certainly there has to come a point, because you're right, He look, he lost his head, he did something he shouldn't have done. There are worse crimes. There has to come a point where you say, you're past it. I don't, anything that happens in the immediate aftermath, like strangely, or after he did that, he won an Oscar, which is the weirdest <laughs> moment in which to have to atone. Anything yeah. that happens in that moment, I kind of take it and I sort of throw it away because I know it's all managers and agents. It's like his publicist was down there immediately talking to him. I, I don't, it's impossible for me to know what you actually think about what you just did right then. Let me ask you again in three months and then I might get your mm-hmm. real feelings on the thing. But yes, at some point we have to forgive Will Smith and Chris Rock. I, so first of all, it's, it's jokes. Now, I, I'm always prone to take the stand-ups side, Right. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not big on group identity except for stand-up comics. Those are my <laughs> That's your tribe. Well, that's my tribe. So I'm biased. Yeah, he had to do some jokes about it. I mean, it's like, you got to, it's the elephant in the room. It's like when Louis C.K. came back, it's like, you have to say something yeah. at some point. The way he got into it, he did a joke about, like, how much bigger than Bill <laughs> Smith is. I thought that was very funny. Jokes about, he said, I don't want to, like, do the whole bit because that'll ruin it. But just, like, people ask, did it hurt? He's like, it still hurts. <laughs> like, that, was, that was very funny. I thought he got into it in a very funny way. I agree that the last the last bits when he's talking about like Jada Pinkett Smith and stuff. Yeah, yeah that's I tough. Done without that, it's tough. Yeah, it's tough. And you know what? 
I don't know if I like blame Chris Rock that much because it is comedy. And also that's like, that's like a humiliating thing to get slapped on national television. And then any, anyone who didn't happen to be watching it right then, well, they certainly saw it the next day, right? So you, I think the entire world saw that, man. I was in Europe, man. It was huge in France. It's crazy. It? Everybody it? in the world saw that slap. That is crazy. So they were talking about that in France? Oh, yeah, dude. Wow. I mean, you can't hide from that. That's true. It's like, what does it mean to get slapped by like one of the biggest movie stars living at the Oscars? <laughs> <laughs> Forever, he's, he's got that attached to him. That's tough, too. It's, t- it's such the, just the weirdest. You're wearing a tuxedo and you get smacked by the Fresh Prince. That's just it's like a Mad Libs of uh, <laughs> ways to get humiliated. You remember that though? You're, it was a fucking weird moment. Like that was a bizarre pop cultural. Are we in a simulation moment? Yeah, I remember. I was I was uh, working on my computer, and my wife came in, and like her eyes are wide, and she goes, "Did you hear what happened?" I'm like, no. She goes, "Will Smith smacked Chris Rock at the Oscars," and I I was like, "You're gonna have to say that again because there's <laughs> Will V Will Smith." Like the smiley, the like independent state actor in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. it's insane. It's incredible. On everyone's incredible. top five list of the most likable dudes just committed assault <laughs> at the Oscars. Also, but like, I mean, so many of my friends just couldn't believe it was real because his form was impeccable. He just like leaned back. <laughs> it was like, it was so executed. He caught him exactly on the cheek. It's hard to imagine well, doing that. It's just. He played Muhammad Ali. <laughs> he did. You know, actors train. They have professionals train them. The movement was impeccable. It was, just, it was extraordinary. I have friends who just swear that there's no way that wasn't like choreographed because you just cannot slap somebody like that one try, one movement, clean. I, I boy, that seemed pretty, uh, pretty spontaneous to me. But, oh, yeah, that was incredible TV. I mean, I don't know what to say about that. We could talk about the slap for an hour. I, I, yeah. I love Chris Rock. He's always like, he's always my goat. I don't think anybody has a funnier voice. I love Dave Chappelle. I think Chris Rock just personally resonates with me in a way that, you know, it's it's hard to, it's hard to explain exactly why. His face and his voice make me laugh. He is really an original in that Chris Rock does the Chris Rock voice. Like he does that cadence. Yeah. And, you know, it's been often mimicked, but nobody before him did that cadence. That's like Mm -hmm. his cadence. And it's such an awesome, I'm going to get way into the comedy weeds here. Yeah, It's such an awesome comedy cadence because he uses fewer words. Nobody knows this about comedy. Mm. I mean, comedians do. Non-comedians don't know. It's like fewer words is key. And he's the best at it because he will say it like this. Mm. And and by Mm. the way, also, when I started doing stand-up in the 2000s, so many comics pacing like Chris Rock. Like Mm -hmm. that really rubbed off on a lot of people. Bring the pain. He's pacing that stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's still doing it. Yeah. yeah. No, I first I, I agree that I love Chris Rock and I do I will cut him a lot of slack because it is humiliating to get slapped at the Oscars and then people in France are talking about it. That's a rough way to go. So <laughs> so okay. Oh, I'm, I'm giving you a wide berth. I do agree that maybe the absolute best response would have been no malice returned to Will Smith whatsoever, which is a difficult thing to summon. Imagine that. I mean, I actually think that that would be that would be so powerful. Yeah. If he could have done that, because what he did in the moment was powerful. If he could have actually stayed at that level, I think we'd be talking about that a lot more than this kind of forgettable Netflix series. I think you're probably right. And we'll leave it there. Speaking of fights, maybe we should have a segment called Who's Thomas Fighting With on 
Twitter <laughs> this week. <laughs> but see, I, yeah, it's, it's easy to talk about what other people should do. I got advice well, well, for other people on how to react. Just to, to briefly revisit what we just talked about, that's why it would have been so amazing if Chris Rock had just elevated himself and returned no malice to Will Smith, because that's really, really hard to do. And it's you really certainly didn't do. get in a down, dirty, and ugly fight with anybody. No, I, I, I really try not to fight on Twitter. That You can't win. It's, 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 it, Twitter really makes both people look bad. You don't a, look good. It's a terrible, terrible place to hang out. But you did engage in a little Thomas on Thomas crime. You got an exchange with uh, Thomas Fun Zimmer. Fact, Thomas, Thomas, the etymology of Thomas is twin. Just going to put that out there. What now? The etymology of the name Thomas in the Thomas? Aramaic is twin. Oh, really? Yeah. So possibly you got in a fight with your own <laughs> twin. Is that what you're saying? There, yeah, man. There is some. There was. There was an evil Thomas out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So say you. But you know what? The evil Thomas would say that his own the other one was the evil Thomas. So I don't know which Thomas to believe. Why don't you run us through your, you know, honestly r- respectful disagreement with Thomas Zimmer? What, what were you? Thomas Zimmer is a guy. I don't really know who he is, to be honest. Um, he's, he's already, he, already he's a name, name that sometimes pops up on my Twitter feed. So it's not the first time I've seen him. But I don't know who he is. I, every time I see him, he's it's, it's often in the capacity of critiquing the people, the the so-called liberals from his leftist perspective, who would criticize things like so-called cancel culture at a time when the authoritarian right is so dangerous that how could we ever point out what's wrong on the left? Um, it, apparently, he's a historian at Georgetown, which which brings me some pain because that's my alma mater. Um, but you, you know that was mine too, right? Dude, I did, did not know actually know that. I didn't, know, didn't that. know that. What year? Yeah, man. We were at 2002. We were at Georgetown at the same time. We were. Yeah, I'm 03. Yeah. Yeah. Me, you, what? John Mulaney, and Ivanka Trump. We're all at Georgetown. Ivanka was time. there. She was no. always smoking outside of Lounger Library. Was she really? She worked hard. It looked, like, it looked like she worked hard. She was always in the library, oh, except she, for weekends when she flew back private, I heard. But okay. <laughs> she flew she, back she, she, she was in my biblical lit class. I do not believe I laid eyes on her one time. But uh, <laughs> Oh, really? I saw her yeah. in the library constantly, constantly. I'm okay. oh, sorry, I got, way, I got us way off track, but, the, but, but yes. Yeah, no, that's... So, so everyone, everyone involved in this is named Thomas and went to Georgetown, basically. This is crazy. <laughs> yeah. Well, he teaches at Georgetown. I, I, I don't know where he studied. But, you know, it's, it's this kind of thing that, that, you know, I don't know what to say anymore because it's like there's a certain kind of cohort on Twitter who every few months or every few weeks, if, you know, if events dictate, they'll just mention that some signatories or people behind the Harper's letter or people who decry cancel culture haven't commented on something that they think is really important. Or they'll say that, you know, we'll not be talking about um, the fact that the greatest threat to freedom of expression comes from Ron DeSantis in Florida. And I actually agree that that's an extreme I don't know. I, it's difficult to say what the greatest threat is, but you know, you know, informal censoriousness can be quite powerful, even sometimes more so than explicit censoriousness. Perhaps Ron is the greatest threat to freedom of expression in America. The fact is that two years ago, I wrote an op-ed in the in the New York Times saying that. But it doesn't matter how many times you say that, because you have criticized the left, you're going to constantly get this type of critique that he brings out here. You, you know, which is. You know, he, he's doing his long tweet thread promoting his Substack, and in one of the in one of the tweets he says, uh, yeah. "An interview with Thomas Chatterton Williams in the New Yorker is exact is actually an excellent example of how the quote unquote evidence quickly evaporates when when exposed to even the slightest scrutiny. When pressed, 
TCW. I mean, anybody, Tanahasi Coates pointed this out years ago. When anybody starts calling you by your initials, you know, they're not, they don't have your best interests. You know, if you don't know well, me and you're calling me TCW. Well, I call you TCWs because you don't want me to call you Tommy Chatty Willie. If you want me to call you Tommy <laughs> Chatty Willie, we can go back to that. If we don't personally know each other and you're criticizing me, you're calling me TCW, like, that's suspect. But when press okay. TCW brings up two cases of academics who were supposedly silenced, you know, and so then he points to two academics who were put through a ridiculous amount of scrutiny and review at their institutions. And ultimately, they somehow managed to hold on to their employment. And that's supposed to be proof that cancel culture doesn't exist. Whereas I think that a conclusion we could easily arrive at is that that has a powerful onlooker effect for anybody else who's like, I don't want to go through that. So whatever they did, even if they were found not to be guilty of any, you know, offense that can get you in trouble, I'm going to not even go that far. That's exactly how cancel culture works. It's not about the number of people who lose their jobs. It's about fostering a culture in which people are afraid to say things and do things and and be associated with certain perspectives and ideas and afraid to make mistakes. Again, can we even make mistakes in this culture? Right. And so, you know, it's just, it's this kind of thing that comes up over and over and over again. And, you know, he was the latest to do it this week. And so, you know, I just, I responded to that. And I said, I'm just so tired of people either being, you know, disingenuous or painfully oblivious um, that left censoriousness is a real thing out there, you know? And so I, I said, you know, let's make this as simple as possible. Just break down to me what happened to James Bennett at the New York Times in the summer of 2020 when he lost his job uh, for overseeing the opinion section when a sitting senator wrote an opinion that I think polls still show most Americans would agree with saying that if you can't control rioting in inner cities, consider bringing in the military. I don't agree with that point of view necessarily, but you know, any opinion section in a national newspaper can publish a sitting senator that's making even a provocative point um, who was extraordinarily qualified if you read the piece. Um, but, you know, there was a kind of insurrection at the New York Times. So yep. staffers went on Twitter and they said that running the piece put them, specifically black staffers, at physical danger and he lost his job. And so if there's no such thing as cancel culture, I don't even like the term, but if that thing doesn't exist, that Thomas Zimmer of Georgetown and painfully of Georgetown University <laughs> said, says, if that doesn't exist, just explain to me what it was that happened to James Bennett. Yeah. No am, answer, am I no correct answer, in assuming no. he did not respond? No. Okay. Not to that. He responded in a billion different ways about how, of course, I wasn't going to get Thomas Chatterton Williams to, uh, to see that what's so obvious to anybody, but like he didn't respond to that specific question of what happened to James Bennett because they never yeah. do. I find it unbelievable <laughs> that there are people who think we don't have a problem with censoriousness in the United States, that they think that that is not something that anybody feels that is not a, a, a realistic threat that anybody lives under in any circumstance. It just blows my mind. Chris Rock actually started his special, which I thought his special was pretty funny. My least favorite part was at the beginning, just because I didn't think it was that funny, talking about cancel culture. Because I'll tell you something, every comic feels this. And every comic, oh, my 10 years of standup was 2005 to 2020. I stopped when COVID hit. I was like, that's it. <laughs> every comic noticed a change. It was just absolutely impossible to miss. And that's why you hear comics. What year would you say that set in? What year? It was what the mid-2010s. You really it was started to... The mid-2010s, things started to get weird. And mm-hmm. then when Trump got elected, that was just, the mm-hmm. doors got blown off the place. And I'll tell you what, in both directions too, because Trump's elected, it's kind of the elephant in the room. So you, you want to talk about it, but 
I go on the road. I wasn't in New York all the time. I'd go on the mm-hmm. road and you would get crowds that are just like, do not say a word about Trump. <laughs> I love that man. It's like, shit, I'm really not having fun now. So would you also say that, and I'm not, not to sidetrack you, but would you also say that Donald Trump specifically was so cartoonish and over the top in some ways? And he is funny. I, I find him reprehensible, but the he man can make you laugh. Uh, would you say that that is hard to do comedy about when the president himself is that absurd and kind of comical? Yes, 100%. Your intuitions are correct. That when the thing itself is funny, it's hard as a comic. There's a term for this, hat on a hat. It means <laughs> the thing's already there. You don't need to add something to it. So yes, Trump would do something ridiculous. And this happened all the time when I was writing for John Oliver on last week's night. Trump does something ridiculous and like, you don't need to tell a joke after it. He is a joke. Right. Yeah. Right. So if you go back and watch those clips, and I don't recommend that you do, but so often it'll be Trump doing something ridiculous. And then the reaction, whether it's from John or Seth Meyers or Colbert or whoever, it's just kind of like unbelievable, right? It's like you really barely need a joke because right, yes, right, he was right, so right. ridiculous. And I, I can talk for hours bleach. about how- you drink bleach. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because a lot of times comedians like bring out the funny thing, right? They point to the thing right, that's absurd exactly. about it. You don't need any pointing when he's instructing people to drink bleach. Yeah, but <laughs> I find it impossible to, that, that anybody thinks this isn't at least a problem some places sometimes. Maybe it's because I work in comedy mm-hmm. and you work in academia we're like kind of in the eye of the hurricane. You know, we see this all around us all the time. But there is a database of this. You know, it's worse in the media than it is in academia, I would say, even. Oh, my God. I I hate to think of fields where it's worse than my field. (laughs) You think it's it's worse in in media? Perhaps because of James Bennett, which I think was a huge moment in American media? I think that everybody saw what happened to him. Yeah. I had a lot of private exchanges going with a lot of different people. And I also was, you know, I was, I was privy to a variety of people who don't necessarily make their opinions heard on social media who were quite shaken up yeah. by how, he, how you can. He was one of the people, one of the three people, probably the front runner, considered uh, next in line to be the executive editor of the New York Times. And yeah. within a couple of days, he was destroyed. Yeah, he is also really is probably relevant. To- an op-ed by a sitting U.S. senator expressing yeah. an opinion that was not even a fringe opinion. That was that was my strongest take on the whole thing, and I I did not agree with Tom Cotton's opinion. But I also I do want to read either. an editorial page where there are opinions that I don't agree with, and I do feel like Tom Cotton is a sitting senator, and I want to know what's in his head. You do. And I'm sorry, but the New York Times is not platforming him. He's already platformed. You know, it's not like um, if you don't let him use this op-ed platform, uh, those ideas will not get out to the public. I mean, Tom Cotton has the platform. Uh, The New York Times has published, uh, I believe they have published Hitler. They have published certainly more recently Modi, Narendra Modi uh, in India, who's overseeing Human rights abuses, let's yep. be honest. Not a good guy. Uh, and, you know, he's a head of state. And there's a reason why they published an op-ed. Vladimir Modi. Putin. Vladimir Putin has had. I'm sure uh, he's op-ed. got a byline. Also, also, you and I. It's just a, a long list of ne'er-do-wells. <laughs> I'm a repeat offender in those pages. <laughs> I don't know if we should scratch that. We maybe have to. I don't want to get canceled. I'm a repeat offender in those pages. I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, we'll see if we can edit that. I think maybe because I was talking and you were talking, we're going to have to leave I'm it in. I'm a little bit worried I, if people... <laughs> the, the James Bennett thing was an earthquake. 
And it also, it was not just James Bennett, Andrew Sullivan at New York Mag got forced out, Matt Iglesias, at a publication he founded at Vox, got, it's that, kind of, he was signing the Harper's letter. Yes, for signing the Harper's letter was, you know, it's like he, I think he, I think the upshot is he said, I'm done with this nonsense and left. Officially. Both of those guys ended up making exponentially more once they went uh, as early movers to Substack. Yeah, and good for them. Right. Andrew Sullivan made more than 10 times his salary or something like that within a year. Yeah, D- so, which I think is a direct, <laughs> I, th- I think it just goes to show people don't want fearful, cowed news. They want to, they want to hear what people think. I read Andrew Sullivan. I disagree with him all the time. He's way more conservative but, than I am, here's but, a, I, here's but I enjoy a, reading him. I read people constantly that I disagree with because don't you, isn't that interesting actually? Isn't that it's the, intellectually I picked a fight challenging? With you, I picked a fight with you about traveling 30 minutes ago just because the disagreement is more interesting than... You were defending agreeing. playing the game of basketball without <laughs> rules. <laughs> and you are a monster for that. But, uh, but it, it does happen. And there is, I mentioned, there, there is a database of this. Fire, fire is basically what the ACLU used yeah, to be. They do great work. Yeah, they do great work. They're talking about free speech. They actually do compile a compendium of mm-hmm. cancellations, however you may define that term. You may go through and think, well, that's not a cancellation. You may think, well, that's a, that's small potatoes. That's a big deal. But it's several hundred incidents. I'll tell you that. So there is an answer to the question: Who has actually been canceled? But I completely agree that it is the it is the chilling effect. That is the the bigger thing. And it's certainly the thing that, the that I feel thing. as a writer that I'm always afraid of saying the wrong thing. And I really, on this podcast, on this Substack, I try to say the thing I actually think because that's all that's interesting. But yeah, you feel it. And the idea that that's not out there is oh, man. shocking to me. You think that there's another editor that's going to risk going out like that? The change. Did you read change. the? Did you read James Bennett's the interview he gave a couple months ago where they yeah. asked him about the firing? Yeah, and he apologized for nothing. Okay, here it is. This is uh, what James Bennett told Ben Smith of Semaphore. He said, my mistake was trying to mollify people. Uh, Speaking of Times publisher A.G. Salzberger, he said he blew the opportunity to make clear that the New York Times doesn't exist just to tell progressives how progressives should view reality and that Salzberger set me on fire and threw me in the garbage. And then he wrote back to Ben Smith and said, (laughs) tell him how you really feel. Tell him how you really feel. Yeah, I thought it was awesome. I mean, maybe I'm being a hypocrite by saying Chris Rock should have elevated himself and then cheering on James Bennett when he says he lit me on fire and threw me in the garbage. I, I should think about what my principles well, are. Well, I think what happened to James Bennett is a lot more severe than a slap. He was fired uh, from a he fired, really he, good he's gig. stigmatized still. Yes. I mean, I respect him for, for doing things like this. He wrote back to the reporter and said, one more thing that sometimes gets misreported. I never apologized for publishing the piece and still don't. Damn. Mm. Damn. Yeah, no, that's Damn. right. And I, yeah, I mean, he, so I don't think he should be apologetic. I think he was screwed and I don't think he should. Yeah. And Eric Wemple, 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 W-E-M-P-L-E at the Washington Post. Yeah, the uh, Washington Post, yeah. He had a good piece several months ago, too, about how there's quite a lot of consensus that that was an enormous mistake now. And, you know, there are some indications yeah. that that was a moment of excess that is no, that, we're, that we are actually no longer in the midst of, that the Times itself no longer reacts to certain controversies with such immediate capitulation. And if that's the case, that's a good thing. You know, I don't, I don't want my whole life to be decrying cancel culture ad infinitum until I'm 
in a coffin. I, I hope oh, that God. we actually get out of this moment. We talk about other things. This zombie corpse of people jumping on Twitter like Thomas Zimmer to say that, you know, and another thing, cancel culture isn't real, except if it happened in this case, that person deserved it. You know, like th this has to stop. But these people, you can't actually argue with them. You can't argue with somebody to see something that they will say doesn't exist. And then when it does exist, it was warranted. It's yeah. just, you, you just can't do it. You yeah, have I just, would, you actually have to persuade the onlookers. You can't engage. You can't persuade the people that refuse to see it. That's true. And you know what? I would settle for this compromise. Whenever people talk about, oh, how how big is cancel culture? How big of a part of a society is it? I would settle for. Can we just agree that when it happens, it's bad? Maybe maybe it is overblown. And certainly, you know, overblown. Yeah, it could definitely be overblown. A lot of things are overblown. Sure, perhaps. Can we just agree that when something like what happened to James Bennett happens, that's that's bad? I'd settle for just that. Maybe that would, I'll already, that would already be an amazing improvement. Yeah. All right, let's <laughs> yeah. move on. There was a survey. The CDC did its biannual survey. And by the way, it kills me that biannual can either mean twice a year or once every two years. I can't believe we don't have two separate words for that. <laughs> John McWhorter, you're a word guy. Are you sure? I always thought it was every two years biannual. My understanding, and oh, this is the type of thing, oh, if we get fucking grammar Twitter on us for this, I will never forgive <laughs> myself. Maybe edit this out just so I don't have to deal with grammar Twitter. But my understanding is that biannual can mean twice a year or once every two years. Ah, I thought it was the latter. It was the latter. I mean, I, I could be wrong. I could I be wrong. Oh, Do we need to consult chat GPT? <laughs> that, no, because it'll, it'll give us a wrong give answer. Us the wrong answer. <laughs> just dig us deeper. Nor am I going to delve into the comments. I swear to God, anyone who leaves a comment about that in the comment section, I'm not going to reply to you. Grammar um, scolds are the best commenters, though. Yeah. They, they get on you. They get on you. I like to, I like to be really harsh on our audience, you know? So, <laughs> tell them what's what. Anyway, the biannual CDC survey of teenage health found that teenagers are reporting the highest rates of poor mental health in a decade. The stat that I saw is that two-thirds of teen girls report feeling persistent sadness. Two-thirds. And if you look at the... Damn. Yeah, it's very high numbers. Interestingly, so two things are interesting. Number one, there's a big uptick around 2012, and we'll get to why that might yeah. be. John Hyde's also about the coddling of the American mind is important, an important book on this. Yeah, John that's exactly of fire. We'll get to that. I just want to throw in one more thing before we loop back to that, which is that Matt Iglesias pointed out there's also a political dynamic to this. And I wrote a piece about this on my Substack. I might be wrong, .substack.com, which is a, that, and again, Matt Iglesias was the first to point this out. There is liberal teens are more depressed than conservative teens. My take is, I don't know if that means that, you know, maybe liberal parents are encouraging their teenagers to report injury and, and be depressed, or maybe it's conservative parents are sort of, you know, encouraging their kids to, you know, just walk it off, toughen up, could be both. But it definitely does seem to relate to the thing that Jonathan Haidt, Haidt or Haidt talks about. Haidt, I believe. Haidt, oh, okay, maybe, thank you. No, it might be Haidt. Uh, you know, I'm bad on knowing exactly how you pronounce people's last names. It might be Haidt. I think it is Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Johnny, Wimple, 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 Johnny H. talks about this in The Coddling of the American Mind and also has written about it on his Substack. I think he makes a persuasive case that a large part, not the entire part, but a large part of what's going on is teenagers and their access to phones and how their social circles are phone-based now and they get a lot of negative stuff about body image and how they mm. should be living their lives. What do you think about that? Do you find that convincing? I find that partially convincing. Um, I saw also today that my colleague at The Atlantic, Derek Thompson, who's always pretty incisive, uh, was making the point that it has something to do with the extraordinary pressure cookers 
that are like our competitive high schools now. And I wonder if that has something to do with the liberal conservative uh, divergence that, you know, in New York City and San Francisco and these places where you've got these super competitive elite schools, kids are probably skewing liberal and they're certainly under enormous pressure to perform and to do all types of extracurriculars and to compete in the meritocracy in ways that I don't even think, you know, when we were coming up, we're basically the same generation. I mean, yeah. I couldn't get into I couldn't get into Georgetown again with my high school with what I put up in high school. I didn't no, do the type of I didn't have six APs and all these extracurriculars and so, you know like I wasn't like traveling abroad to 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 do community service and stuff. You know these kids are under they are under yeah. enormous pressure. So I wonder if it has a mix of that the coddling of the American mind by Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff which I think is one of the seminal books of the past decade. You know, it's also like a parenting manual. It's just amazing mm-hmm. common sense. They certainly make the strong case that this generation that started hitting colleges around 2013, 2014 um, was specifically fragile and, and, and not resilient in certain ways and was under a lot of stress by social media and, you know, the kind of chaotic uh, disruption to our to our ways of being that, you know, internet technology and these smartphones we walk around with have, have wrought. There's something to all of that, I think, you know, but I don't know. Yeah. I, I, it's one of those questions. I was having dinner the other night with an undergrad, uh, with another professor and um, an undergrad at a pretty nice Italian restaurant. And, you know, this is not my student. And, you know, they were just telling me at some point they mentioned like offhandedly even, they said, well, I just walk around with the mentality. I understand that I could die at any moment. And I was like, what do you mean? And, and they were like, I could get shot at any moment. What? Do you, do you, you think? Shot okay, at no, any I, moment? I, I don't know this person. I've never met this person. Do you think that is something a person says because they want you to go, oh man, oh man. That's like, man, you're like living, you're living a hard life. You're, you're an interesting person. Do you think that's the reaction they wanted? Well, all of the, because there were about 10 students uh, at two tables at this restaurant and all of uh-huh. them were nodding in agreement. They were like, you know, like schools get shot up every day in America. You know, <clears throat> I was, I was really blown away because I don't remember ever feeling like that. Uh, I don't remember people talking like that. They were, and they were also talking about the danger of climate. They were talking about, they were, you know, 18, 19 years old. So not so different than the high school age students that yeah. are in these statistics you're citing. They were right. dressed and feeling um, set upon by the world in ways that we were not, that I was not. And my friend group was not. And I'm talking about the, like the hood kids I grew up with in New Jersey and like the kids that I met later at like a nice university. None of us were feeling beset upon like that. No, but we, but Columbine had just happened when we were in college. Right. But um, it didn't, it didn't feel like that was, um, something that was going to, ha- I didn't walk around saying like that could happen to me any day now. No, me either. And this is what Matt Iglesias wrote his article about was that there is sometimes this climate of doomerism on mm-hmm. the left, which I think is completely true, especially because, you know, I, I write a lot about climate change. I worked for the EPA for nine years. So climate's kind of my area. There's a lot of climate doomerism which, and, and like, I'm a person who, like I said, I write about climate change a lot. I'm, I'm worried about it. It's a problem. I see it as a problem that needs to be worked. I don't have this imposing sense of doom about it. A super weird thing is that if you think of the worst case scenarios with climate change, there is also a sense of, yeah, but we'll all be dead, which is exactly why it's so difficult to get action on it right now. Because the truth is, you and I, and even the 19 year olds you're talking to, are not really at risk. It's more like from a gener- generation after us. From your lips to the ears of God. 
Yeah. So I don't know. I think it's so Iglesias's point is that, which I think is a good one, is that th- there does seem to be this really depressive affect. What I mm-hmm. talked about in my article, because I, I agree with Iglesias, but I think there's something more than that. I think sometimes if you have a parent who is super responsive, I mean, super responsive to any injury a kid might suffer. And obviously it's good to be somewhat responsive. You don't want to be a block of ice, right? But if you have a parent <laughs> who's super responsive, you might learn as a child, and as I'd say as a 19-year-old, you're still likely to be repeating patterns that you learned when you were younger. You are likely to learn that any, anything you might be afraid of, any injury you might feel, any fear you might have, play that up because you're going to get a response to it. And when the person in this big crowd of people, like you were saying, you know, says like, oh man, I'm worried about schools getting shot up. Nobody says, nobody like pipes up and says, well, you know, like statistically your odds of that, you know, it's like getting struck by lightning. That's just not a polite thing to say. So nobody says it, right? It's true, man. But it's across the board. It's with adolescence, but it's also, you know, catastrophizing Really like um, taking, you know, numbers that are not uh, indicative of a threat to you directly and making it seem like, you know, I got to be honest, this happens in the racial conversation. America has an extraordinarily violent police industrial complex. I live in France. Maybe 18 people a year in France uh, are killed in police custody. Maybe that would be like a big year. And it's a nation of, you know, almost 70 million people. So it's not as big as the United States, but proportionally, America kills more people. We kill in police custody, unarmed, probably between 1,000 and 1,500 people a year in America. It's, it's, it's bad. Of those, maybe 250 will be, will be black. That's also bad. That's disproportionate. It's, you have more likelihood as a, as, a, as a black man to be wrongfully killed in police custody than you do if you're not black. And yet the discourse can reach a level of, I got to say, catastrophizing where people will say, I know that I can walk. I, I'll tell you, I was in, remember Clubhouse? Yeah, that drop. I thought you were talking about some place at Georgetown. I was like, <laughs> this, oh, no, no bizarre, I didn't hang out much. Okay, yeah, moment yes. in, in the pandemic where yeah. Clubhouse dropped and like you could just find yourself talking to random people. And I was in this room, thanks to my buddy, Camille Foster. It was Camille Foster, myself, Coleman Hughes, and some other people, including MC Hammer. And MC Hammer that is tells not the me, name I expected you to say next. Wasn't the name I was expecting to tell me <laughs> about the, the, the it risk. Me, it was me, Camille Foster, Coleman Hughes, and guess who the fourth person was? No, there were a bunch of people, but MC Hammer was I don't know, one. Elf? Of them. Close. MC <laughs> Hammer. MC Hammer says, you know, he's a successful venture capitalist now. And he is says he? that, you know, he knows that his son can walk out the door tomorrow as a black man and die but because of, in police custody. And I say, you, no, he won't. No, he won't. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's not, it's it's not going like, to happen. It, it, it could happen. What could, Very unlikely. An asteroid can hit it, but it, it's not going to yeah. happen mathematically. It's as good as zero. And yeah. it has never happened to somebody like MC Hammer's son uh, in recent memory. It's not happening. Um, but that was, he was convinced that that was a real, real risk every day. Uh, or he was, or he was in the rhetorical mode of insisting that it was. I don't know if he truly believes it in his court. You don't know what people truly believe. I don't know if this student right. really believed that someone's going to shoot up her college. I don't know if MC Hammer really believes that. But you know, words get tossed around now like genocide. Is it, there, I, really I'm rereading because I'm working on a book. Was that? I said we really toss the word genocide around. It, it's it's we do. way, way, way too much. Yeah. Working on a book about 2020 and the amount of times that people said there's a genocide, it's horrific what happened to George Floyd. There's a genocide happening. 
but that's that's a serious term that means something mm-hmm. it means something so yeah. I, I don't it's not just adolescence uh, i think it's really like the lens that you're looking at this phenomenon with through teen girls it means something but it, it's something much more ambient in the culture yeah, you use the word catastrophizing, and I think that's a good word. Both Matt Iglesias and Noah Smith, in response to this very study that we're ta- talking about, talked about mental health strategies and how, basically, and I, I hope I'm characterizing the argument correctly, but mental health best practices do not include catastrophizing. Um, right. Catastrophizing and, and seeing problems as bigger than they are. We have polling now about how many, and I don't have the polls in front of me, so I'll have to generalize, but liberals believe that far more unarmed black men are killed every year than there are than are actually we believe exponentially more exponentially yeah. more yeah not every liberal i know i've seen the data and it's i don't know why it's so hard for liberals sometimes to say it's any number that's higher than zero is too many police mm-hmm. brutality is a problem this is something we will continue to work on and yet let's get the right number Let's not believe the problem is bigger than it is. I often wonder if my feelings on catastrophizing and blowing threats out of proportion are what they are because I'm 42 and terrorism was all anybody talked about in the 2000s. So I sort of learned to have this posture where when people were talking about Al-Qaeda and the threats and the things that could happen, you know, I was always like, okay, yeah, it's like it is a threat, but can we keep it? In perspective, because that is another case of people just coming to believe that the threat was was far greater than it actually was, even though it was real. Right. I mean, you see, look, we have like people really have difficulty with probabilities. I mean, I'm certainly no exception with with the pandemic. We saw people just cannot think well in terms of in terms of real risk and probability assessment. And maybe we're also in a culture that encourages you to use rhetorical moves. Um, this brings us back to the conversation about James Bennett. It's not accidental that people phrased the transgression and the language of harm and physical safety when they objected to the publication of the op-ed. That, that was a strategy. That, th- there's an awareness that when you put issues and disagreements in the language of safety, um, that a different response is necessary now, that you get a kind of moral authority. You get a kind, you, it's a way to trump an argument. And, you know, there, that can't be dismissed either. So I, there's a whole lot going on right now. And it's not just adolescence. It's distilled pretty clearly through the travails of teenage girls and the kind of, you know, particular pressures they're under. But it's something much, much bigger than that, too. Yeah, knowing just how much it sucks to be a teenager. And personally, I did not enjoy it. I would not want to go back to that time. I, I feel like that is inevitable when you're a teenager, right? It's like your hormones are nuts. I mean, as a guy, you should honestly be chained to a stake like a werewolf from the time when you're 15 to 25. Your hormones are just insane. Everyone around you is still learning how to be a person. So there are a lot of jerks. You've got pressures on you. I I think it's interesting that you brought the thing about pressure in high school. Yeah, that's I'd love to see the data broken down that way. People who go to highly competitive high schools and and kids that don't, that'd be really interesting. So many pressures, you're going to feel shitty. It doesn't help for adults who should know better to parachute in and go, you're right, everything's fucked. (laughs) Right, exactly. That doesn't help. And you, you know, like, and you're probably going to get shot in school. (laughs) It's just, is is the climate change or the shooting, school shooting going to get you first? That's the only question. How do you want to go? Burned alive or shot through the heart? Yeah, that's not... Not the message I want to give to my son. 
Um, no, it's not. You, yeah. Hey, speaking of people forming perceptions that are completely distorted and do not reflect how the world actually is, can we talk about Fox News before we go? Yeah, yeah. Man. <laughs> that, there were some amazing text messages that I saw uh, going around. Um, then why don't you lead us into it? Because they, they are a ton of fun. So Tucker Carlson... Some text messages to an unnamed recipient uh, were released uh, this weekend. We're going around TikTok. It was me. I can reveal now. It was me. (laughs) Tucker Carlson says, quote, we are very, very close to being able to ignore Trump most nights. Uh, He texted on January 4th, 2021. I truly can't wait. Carlson, who had shared private meetings with the president and defended him on air, added in a text. I hate him passionate. What he's good at is destroying things. He's the undisputed world champion of that. He could easily destroy us if we play it wrong. I mean, this is incredible. You can't make that up. It's incredible. And it is the latest in a long string of incredible revelations from these texts. So we'll we'll kind of go backwards and talk about some of those. But I, I do love this, partly because I find Trump to be such a despicable person. And here you have someone who was his probably his biggest cheerleader, arguably his biggest cheerleader in public. After Hannity. After, after Hannity. Hannity. Yeah, right. Well, but top top five. He's certainly in the pantheon of Trump stooges. And top here five. he is behind the scenes going, oh, I can't fucking stand that guy. It's amazing. <laughs> and, and, you know, and then he comes out with the January 6th documentary. The doc- um, I don't care about this part. For this, the documentary. Man, for this man's lie. <clears throat> he, did, he did this whole Fox documentary on Oh, what Patriot really Purge? Of course. Are you? T- I watched yeah. Patriot Purge for my Substack. <laughs> I watched that. Whole- people owe me. I- I'm going to drive people to my Substack right now. The piece <laughs> is called on. I might be wrong about Substack.com. Let's watch Tucker Carlson's Patriot Purge and wonder just how dumb things can get. I watched all four parts of that thing. It is mind blowing. And this man is privately texting that he hates the president. And the president hates- disgrace thing. <laughs> yes, he's the champion of destroying things. World champion. Yes. And then he's carrying what? I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. It is unbelievable because it just goes to show how cynical people in media can be. And we are people in media. This is, I also write about this on my Substack because I want people to know these are the pressures we feel. You figure out at some point what your audience wants to hear. Audience capture. Audience capture. There's a phrase for it. These Fox News texts reveal that they had given in to audience capture, capture, as badly as anyone has ever given into it. They lost their own sense of a moral compass. They lost their own sense of reality. They defied the things that they themselves knew to be corrected true. I mean, it's almost easier to think it would be better if we thought like he really loved Trump. He believed that this was right. And he was fighting for a cause he believed was just. This is so much worse than that. (laughs) Yes, yes. It had been an open question for a long time. How did Tucker Carlson become this way? Because he used to be a regular guy. He used to be known for his I was actually a decent writer, a decent reporter. He, he, yeah, he's, that's the other thing. He's not dumb. He's not just, you know, some cement head. And you're like, well, you know, he's just some fucking idiot. He's a sharp guy. You do wonder how and why does he come to be spouting all this bullshit? And now we have the answer. It's just, no, that's what my audience wants. Like you said, it's it's boring. It's bland. It's uh, I just wanted good ratings. Yeah, and I don't have it in front of me, but at some point uh, a couple of weeks ago, one of the texts that was revealed from him was that even as he was criticizing Trump on air, he chastised another colleague for going against the Trump narrative because he said, like, basically, you're making the stock prices go down. Yes. How dare she? That's yes, crazy. she was mad because she. I, I believe I'm getting the, the correct instance. She had fact fact checked a tweet of Trump's, 
And yes, that yeah. pissed Tucker Carlson off because she was making the stock price go down. How do you think Fox News viewers feel about this? Seeing these texts they don't, come I, out? I know for, they do not care. They don't care. Don't care? Okay. They don't care. And that's one of the scariest parts about the whole thing. They don't care. We're so polarized. You know, anything that we said about the abuses that like James Bennett was subject to, the people on the team that believe that that was the correct thing to do, they don't care. And the people on the team that uh, just want, you know, to fight for Team Trump, they don't care about mm-hmm. what Tucker Carlson uh, says privately in his text messages so long as he's on TV saying what, you know, what they want to see. I, this, is, this is the most disturbing rally. The polarization of this country is to such a degree that hypocrisy, factual inconsistencies, new arguments, new information doesn't move the needle. So how do, how do we fight against that? Because you and I are both in media in our own way you more than me. But how do we fight against that? Because it is tempting to just give your audience what they want. And, you know, we did a segment about censoriousness and cancel culture, and people know who you are. Three people know who I am. We gave the view that they already know that we have, which is that it is bad to be censored. It's, it has a chilling effect. You know, we gave our spiel. People knew what our position was going to be. So, like, what do we do? Do we, you know, come on and you know, give the opposite opinion or uh, how no, does someone in media respond to this inclination to just tell the audience what they want to hear? So my sense is that you have to always be wary of being captured by who you think your audience is or allowing yourself to cultivate an audience that is so monolithic that there isn't diversity of thought within your audience. And, you know, what I hope we're cultivating here and what I always try to speak to in my writing and in a, in a mainstream publication is that person who is not on one of those teams. There's a lot of people, you know, more in common is this wonderful think tank between Paris and London and the United States uh, run by my friend Mathieu Lefebvre. Uh, and they do all of these reports. Most people are not on either of those two polls. You know, uh, mm-hmm. it tends to be that media is polarized around those two polls and plays to the, to the you know, it's like primaries where you play to the most fervent you know, supporters in your base, the media is polarized that way, but most people are somewhere in the middle. And you, I think you have to address yourself to those people that can be persuaded, uh, whether immediately or down the road. There, there's a lot of people like that out there who are not commenting, who are not making their opinions known, but are kind of watching, observing, listening. And, and that's where the whole game is, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I do think we have learned that there is a market for news that is not just giving partisan talking points, because that is sort of what happened with Andrew Sullivan and Matt Iglesias, who we mentioned earlier, they got basically driven out of their own publications and were forced to become millionaires <laughs> and were forced to become millionaires on Substack. That's right, because people do want to read. Those guys are both just saying what they think, which is why I read them, which is why I find them interesting. It is also true that after the James Bennett situation at the New York Times, and after also Don McNeil was a similar situation. Oh, where he got Don McNeil, we could go into another podcast on that one. Yeah. Very good reporter. It's a shame to lose him during COVID, especially. But I think the he New York Times... Lives. reporting was saving lives. Yeah, I, I, I thought he was a good reporter. I enjoyed his stuff during COVID. I think there are a lot of people in the Times that were taken aback by that and want to write the ship. And I think we have seen that. We can't recount this whole thing, but a couple weeks ago, there was a letter from GLAAD, Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, criticizing the New York Times for their coverage of trans issues. They cited a couple articles that personally I felt were balanced 
I I thought Glad's claims, they had some quibbles, but I thought their claims were extremely overblown. And the New York Times responded by saying, thank you for your criticism. We stand by our reporting. Obviously, I'm paraphrasing there. Right. I think that is people in the New York Times pushing back and saying, we want to be a credible organization again. And I am one of many readers of the New York Times who's like, great, that is the New York Times I want. Fantastic. So there is a market for that, I think. Yeah, that was a very heartening response. Um, Joseph Kahn, the Joe Kahn, the new uh, executive editor, I think he found the exact right tone. Now, there are a lot of people like Thomas Zimmer on Twitter, uh, in, in that kind of tribe on Twitter, who who were not pleased with that response. But I think that your yeah. your most representative reader of the New York Times was probably 100% behind the rationale that Joe Kahn and his colleagues laid out in their response. Uh, that's what people want from the paper of record, you know, not to become captive to, you know, their most activist, uh, you know, antagonists. So um, there are glimmers of light. Um, I think let's put things in perspective, you know, uh, what, you know, there's no comparison between what goes on in the New York Times and what we've been seeing yet again at Fox News. There's no comparison. Very true. But, you know, I don't think that that's not really a point that has to be won day in and day out. I think Very we true. basically all agree on that. Yeah. And and you're right. Let's keep things in perspective. Let's not succumb to the doomerism that we were just criticizing 10 minutes ago. I, I think it's important as people in media to try to try to be honest with what we're thinking, try not to be ideological, try to call them as we see them. And I think you have absolutely done that tonight with your hot, hot takes on NBA traveling. You are I'm not going to rest. I'm not going to rest until we get to the bottom of this issue. <laughs> we, Nobody we need a pivots anymore. You never see a good crisp bounce pass in the NBA. More pivoting. They do layups from the left side with their right hand now. It's all gone to shit. I need an open letter here. I need an open letter here. Hey, man, good talking (laughs) to you as always. Want to do this again next week? Let's do it again next week. Cool, man. Talk to you then.